I'm in this police state now. I've got to play by their rules. And they started to dig through all, my, all the items of clothing in my bag, full body search. But eventually what they found was some cocodamol tablets in my first aid kit, uh, which unbeknown to me are a illegal narcotic in Uzbekistan. They contain traces of heroin. Uzbekistan sits just north of, of uh, Afghanistan, which produces around 95% of the world's heroin. So it's very, very hot on, on anything related to drugs trafficking. And so from that moment forward, from these few pills in my, ruck, in my rucksack, I was then detained as an illegal drug trafficker in one of the world's strictest police states. Those who are living a life of freedom have optimised themselves and their lives in pursuit of one thing, choice. They've created the financial, geographical and time freedom to do what they want, when they want to. But they've also created freedom from their internal limitations, their story, their biology and their character. In this podcast, The Freedom Project, it is my attempt to shortcut your learning curve to having total freedom in your life so you can go and do more cool shit. I'm going to bring you deep dives into some of the most inspiring adventure athletes and business owners in the world. I'm also going to give you the key concepts of my coaching process to adventurepreneurs so you can start applying that to your life today. So here is another episode of The Freedom Project. What kind of person is compelled to travel from the lowest point in every continent to the highest through human power alone? Well, the same kind of person who's willing to walk the length of the world's largest freshwater lake whilst it's frozen over. And the same person who ends up in the hands of Uzbek interrogators accused of narcotic smuggling. This person is adventurer, explorer and expedition leader Oli France. Through his journeys, Oli has learned a metric ton. He's learned the components of a great adventure, how to plan for success and how to avoid failure. In this episode of The Freedom Project with Oli France, we discuss how to plan the expedition of a lifetime and how to give yourself the best chances of success. You're going to leave this with a thorough understanding of the planning process and how to execute successfully, including the stages of planning a life-changing adventure, how to build a team that thrives in hardship, how to prepare your body and your mind for robustness and performance, how to make the most of all these experiences, and how to get over post-expedition blues. There's one bit in this interview with Ollie where he talks about the person he's met along the way who's had the biggest influence on him. And if you listen to any of the podcast, just that bit is enough. This is all kind of gold within this um, and hugely beneficial to me personally. But that bit, it really touched something within me that made me think, yeah, like, fuck yeah, this guy is onto something. And the changes that people and the transformations that people go through in these journeys is just phenomenal so there's huge lessons in here that not just apply to um, expeditions and planning life-changing expeditions but any adventure and any very difficult challenge that you face in life and how to encounter those successfully whether they are voluntary or otherwise so here is the wonderful ollie france welcome to the show a uh, real pleasure to have you on board and ever since i saw the kind of the process of the ultimate seven unfolding for you i've been so stoked to get you on board so um welcome ah thanks so much tom really appreciate it and looking forward to the conversation let's do it man let's um start in i suppose an obvious place for this when did you first decide to become an adventurer and what i mean by that is not just someone who spends time outside but like a full-on adventurer 
Mm. Yeah, and I think that the second part of that question probably helps inform my answer because there were moments in my younger life where I had this element of adventure running through what I did, but I would never, never have even dreamt that this idea of being full-time adventure was was even a possibility. So it was it was probably around the age of 25 and in an unlikely place, I was working, I'd had this background of travel, studied outdoor leadership in a degree, done lots of expeditions, but fallen into this job, which I hated. And it's the classic tale, really. It was a corporate job selling kitchens for a, for a kitchen manufacturer in Yorkshire, absolutely hopeless at it, had no passion for it, and realized that I needed to get back to what I love. And, and the honest truth is I was, I was deeply miserable at the time, um, really stuck in a rut and could feel myself going down this, going down this path I did not want to follow. And as I say, this seems like a strange way to get to becoming an adventurer. But for me, it got to the stage where that was all I'd ever found real, true joy in. And, and I knew that the, that was where my passion lay. And so I knew I had to take a, a leap of faith to get there and actually try and pursue this goal. And, and so that is what I did. And this was 2015. Quit the job. I had it was terrible timing. I was due to get married to my wife in a few months' time. Um, I, we were just we just bought a house. We were commencing a full house renovation, and of course, I had no prospect of future income whatsoever. So it was a real step out into the unknown. And I realized that if I wanted to actually make this happen, I really needed to go big. And and the plan was to go from Hong Kong to Istanbul. So it's right the way across Asia. It's an 8,000 mile journey. I would be traveling by any means on my own in the middle of winter and aiming to climb at least one, one mountain in each country visited, kind of following that mountainous spine of Asia. And this was, yeah, this was the transformative moment in my life, really. It became a huge expedition, huge life experience, which led me down the path of, of building this career in adventure. What was the initial thing that took you to the selling kitchens job? <laughs> quite quite honestly, I got back from a, a year overseas. I just got got out of uni, uh, working in Australia, traveled around Asia, the classic kind of backpacker thing. And it, it was amazing. Absolutely loved it. And as I got back from, from that, back in the UK, did that thing of checking the bank balance, realized, okay, I've been living on a, a backpacker budget and it was probably time to earn some money. And, you know, started to mention to a couple of people, hey, might need to might need a proper job one thing led to another and uh, had a couple of conversations and then there I was and and there was an appeal there for sure because I was walking into a job age 21 22 at the time um you know brand new brand new car fuel cards you know bonus scheme salary it seemed really really appealing coming straight out of uni straight out of backpacking I'd never had you know I'd never had any of those things before so there's an appeal there for sure. Um, and, you know, sometimes you do need to try things before you can decide whether or not it's for you. Could have proved that it was the right path for me. But, um, yeah, I, I soon learned it, it certainly wasn't. It's funny, isn't it? You, like, there's that constant pull, I find, with both the people I work with, but also myself and the people I hang out with as well between do I follow that 
adventurous path and it feels like there's something like really in your heart that is completely identifying like this is the type of thing that i want to do there's something completely resonates with me and also Mm -hmm. the very practical reality of i've got a family i've got a wife i've got to earn some money and the mismatch between those two is such a hard balance to strike It, it is and that is certainly a line which i've had to navigate because you know it sounds almost very simple to say, okay, I'm going to become an adventurer now. But the, the way I, I sometimes put it is being an adventurer is a fancy way of saying you're unemployed. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of how it feels, certainly at the, at the outset, because there is no blueprint for making a, a career in, in this line of work, you know. And so it involves really hustling, kind of spinning different plates, making different things happen, being, I suppose, entrepreneurial, creative with how you're actually turning this into a career to, of course, support all of those things. You know, I'd love to live in a world where we didn't need to pay for the pay for the mortgage and we didn't need um, income and we could literally just live this pure life of adventure. But, you know, we, we do live in the modern world. And, and so it requires, I suppose, a foot in both both camp, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh an interesting journey the, the self-employed one i feel like it's almost a an adventure in itself it's like a meta adventure it's, and for you that's comprised of smaller practical adventures but it's in like an overarching one of you take a leap of faith you don't really know what you're getting yourself into the old analogy of you build a parachute after jumping off the cliff like you're you're doing that kind of approach um yeah. and it's yeah it's it's a tough process we're gonna loop back around to this come into mm. this but i want to jump into the uzbekistan border mm. and i'm just going to set you off there i can point you in the right direction if you want but talk to him about <laughs> yeah. the uzbekistan border okay so this was 2016 i was midway through this journey which i just described where i quit my job was now traveling across asia already had traveled halfway across asia through tibet china kazakhstan kyrgyzstan tajikistan had a few hairy moments already been interrogated uh, narrowly missed by an avalanche in Kazakhstan and had all these crazy encounters along the way. And and then I reached the Uzbek border. And as I was approaching Uzbekistan, people people I was meeting on the road, they started to tell me that just, just be careful because Uzbekistan, it, it's not like those other countries in Central Asia. And to add a layer of context there, these this block of Central Asian countries, they're five ex-Soviet countries, uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, each of which has its own identity uh, and very interesting for different reasons. But Uzbekistan at that time in 2016 was a completely totalitarian police state. Um, it was it's known to be the second, it has the second worst freedom for its people after North Korea. So that sort of gives you a sense of where it's at. And and so I knew that I had to be careful. and. I went to cross the border into G- from Tajikistan, a quiet, dark evening, and very few people were crossing that border. In fact, tr- freedom of travel was closed between the two countries. So it was pretty much just me and a couple of locals going across late at night. And I had these warnings ringing in my ears and went to cross the border. You walk uh, out of Tajikistan, across no man's land, into the Uzbek side. First of all, great impression very nicely presented, uniformed officer, stamped my passport, welcomed me to Uzbekistan. I thought, well, what's all the fuss about? And he sent me through to the next room. And as I got into that room, 
everything changed. The atmosphere was very, very tense, very intimidating. There were a number of soldiers in you know, full military uniforms and just me. And it was a very white, sterile environment with tables. And they said, okay, we want your bag. We want your phone, your laptop, any electronic items. Had to hand all of those over. And very quickly, they were gaining access into my laptop, into my phone, browsing through the, the footage and files. And of course, at this moment, I'm stamped into Uzbekistan on my own and really very limited on, on what I can actually do to, to fight back in, you know, I'm in this police state now. I've got to play by their rules. And they started to dig through all, my, all the items of clothing in my bag, full body search. But eventually what they found was some cocodamol tablets in my first aid kit, uh, which unbeknown to me are a illegal narcotic in Uzbekistan, they contain traces of heroin. Uzbekistan sits just north of, of uh, Afghanistan, which produces around 95% of the world's heroin. So it's very, very hot on, on anything related to drugs trafficking. And so from that moment forward, from these few pills in my, in my rucksack, I was then detained as an illegal drug trafficker in one of the world's strictest police states. And I mean, that that's where the story really, really unfolded. I was interrogated for several hours at, at the border post up until midnight. They wanted me to sign a bunch of papers with, written in Russian. I'm looking at these things, just thinking, look, there's no way I'm going to sign this. I have no idea what it says. I thought I'm going to call the British embassy the next morning. They said, okay, put me in a cell over the night, gave me the phone in the morning, said, you've got three minutes to make the call. And there you go. And so called up the British embassy. It was a Friday, late March, 2016 and got this automatic voice message. Um, sorry, it's Good Friday and we're going to be closed until the following Tuesday. And the phone was taken away and I was back to square one. No phone signal, no contact with the outside world. And then I was just stuck into this alien process, really, where I had very little clue as to what was going to happen to me. But of course, my first thought was, Drug trafficking is a pretty serious allegation, particularly in a police state. So am I now looking at just disappearing into, into a prison in Uzbekistan for, you know, who knows how long? That was, that was the fear. They drove me down to a city called Termez on the Afghan border. You know, certainly not a, a, a tourist destination and met me, uh, led me to a clinic where they took my blood, took my urine sample to see if I had the supposed drug in my system, held me under house arrest, assigned me with, a, they did assign me with a lawyer eventually. And they said, okay, you've got two choices. It's either $500 fine or 30 days in jail. And I thought, well, you know, it's, it'll be $500 well spent. That would have been easy, but I couldn't get my hands on the physical cash. I had some cash, but not 500. Mm. And, um, they didn't, nowhere in Uzbekistan at that time would accept visas and MasterCards. So I, I literally could not get my hands on the cash to pay my way out. Um, eventually managed to allow them to give me another phone call, made an awkward call back home at sort of 5 a.m. On the, on the weekend. And my dad answered and I briefly explained the situation, but came to the point that, look, you need to send some money via Western Union transfer to Uzbekistan or I'm going to prison. And um, and that, that's what he had to do. And it took a few days. 
uh, I was still under house arrest, was being sort of intimidated, you know, all kinds of curious, serious people coming to my room, trying to take my phone off me, trying to just generally play mind games with me. And um, eventually got the cash. And five days later, after five days of house arrest, led me out to uh, to pay this fine. And they, they took me to what proved to be uh, what I late to learn was an ex-KGB compound on the outskirts of the city. And as I changed this $500 into cash, it was the denomination in Uzbekistan is such that $500 worth of cash, once trans- transferred into Uzbek money, is literally a carrier bag full of cash. And so there I was walking into an ex-KGB compound with a bag full of cash to pay my way out of prison. Um and so it's just a completely bizarre situation. And they went. In, I went in there. Eventually, you know, they counted all this money and said, right, here's your passport. You're free to leave Uzbekistan. And this is the point where the story could have ended. Um, but I had no intentions of, of leaving the country. I, I was on a mission to climb at least one mountain in every country visited. And I did not want these people to stop me. And so I befriended the interpreter. He was due to take me in a taxi to the airport. I said to him, look, I don't want to go to the airport. Uh, I want to go up to the mountains. Can you help me? And he agreed. And he sent me off in a taxi up to the mountains. And my plan was to carry on climbing. And um, yeah, what what then followed was essentially being followed around this village by police, Still had no contact with the outside world. I had policemen spying through my bedroom window, um, being intimidated on the streets. And so, you know, effectively they were watching me and I just had this deep sense of paranoia. Um, and yeah, after, after climbing this mountain, I got myself got myself back down to the city and just thought 5 a.m. the next day, I need to get out of here. And so I did this sort of, Jason Bourne-esque escape out of the city where I out of the village where I got a taxi to the next town, changed taxis, got one to the next town, traveled 500 miles across the country, changing taxis in every town, um, trying to keep as low profile as possible until I could eventually smuggle myself out on an overnight train into Kazakhstan and uh, and out of the country. But yeah, so that that that's the Uzbekistan story. Um, very very crazy experience. Um, so there you go. Yeah. So the first thing that goes through my mind when I'm hearing that is like putting myself in your shoes and mm-hmm. going like, how would I do in that? And like one of the the challenges to like hold up is that very selfish pursuit of adventure. I think like personally, when I'm thinking about like myself going on adventures um, and going, whether it's a ski touring mission, like I'm planning a big trip to Pakistan at the moment, or mm. maybe Kyrgyzstan, like we're kind of weighing up the, the options and think like, where do I go there? And I'm aware that, in terms of my health, it's a very, and my safety and also the roles that I play at home, it's mm. a very selfish thing to do. It's literally mm. all about me. Um, and it doesn't play into that. But I'm also aware that when I've been in sketchy situations, for example, pretty serious avalanche at one point, um, or when I've been, uh, <laughs> when I um, had stolen or lost my passport in Laos, like mm. it's, it's kind of sketchy, but like you go into this self-preservation mode so did your mind go to like okay i'm not gonna think about home or was in was or was it like tinged with that i don't know i i always put like when i put myself in your shoes like a certain amount of mm. guilt in that um 
I think, I, you know, this is maybe something I, I can talk about a little because I, I, I do spend a lot of time away from home and I do have a wife and two young children now. And I, I've, I've almost had to come up with a coping mechanism of spending a long time away from home doing what I do. And, you know, I think on the surface level, it can feel selfish at times. Um, and for me, emotionally, I've got to essentially just cut any of those thoughts out of my mind. So I even, you know, relatively reduce the conversations that I'm having, try not to look at photos, things like that. I just try not to allow my mind to go there. And when I, when I actually think about it and I look at the bigger picture and I think, okay, what is this experience doing for me as a person? I think, well, it, it's it's strengthening my character. I'm learning all kinds of things. Hopefully, I'm inspiring my children. I believe I'm becoming a better person, a better father, a better husband uh, because of what I'm doing. And so those are the intangible benefits that I, that I see from the whole picture. And then when I am back home, um, I do feel like I can be the absolute best version of myself who is elevated in myself through these experiences. You know, that that's the best way I, I can describe it. And but when I so when I am deep into a, a dangerous predicament or or situation, um, I really try to keep my mind away from from family, from emotions, and and just be methodical in in right yeah absolutely self preservation what can i do to get myself out of this situation and of course to, to use the uzbekistan story as a reference point i had nobody to help me whatsoever no embassy no other than one conversation with my dad you know no outside support and certainly they were not going to help me uh, in fact they were hellbent on on not helping me and and so you know you had to fight you really had to fight uh, I had to fight my way out of that situation. That's what I had to do. Um, and I think um, when you are in those situations, and, and there have been many over the years during, during my expeditions, I almost need to, I, I think the worst thing you can do is make no decisions. Uh, to me, indecision is 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 just never going to get you anywhere. That is, that is a flat line. And so any decision at that point in, in those moments will help even if it does if it's not the right decision at first if you make yeah you can make a decision maybe it's not the right course of action but then you know um and you can change course and you can try something else um but yeah it's it's switching into a, a logical mindset where you're thinking what can i do to better my situation as soon as possible uh, by whatever means I love the, sorry, I'm going to circle back to something yeah. you said in there because I, I find it really interesting. The, the idea of using adventure as a, as a tool for self-development and the way that you can come back from adventure saying like, okay, I'm a better version of myself now. Like I've experienced these things, I've challenged them. I also think the kind of the inverse applies where if, I don't know whether I'm talking to you here as well, but if I don't go on these trips, there's an itch that I can't scratch and there's a burning desire. And I find myself just like becoming a worse and worse version of myself mm. because I'm not doing that thing that is inherently meaningful to me. It's like um, if you took a violin away from a 
concert level uh, violinist it's mm. the it's like if you took a pen away from an author there's like there's something that i have to do not necessarily to express myself but something that's very inherently meaningful and just, like i think that is also a part of the conversation yeah that that is that really resonates with me and you know, I have this conversation with my wife and, you know, it is the case that if I'm, if I'm, if I spend too long at, at home or not doing these adventurous things, then it just starts to eat away at me a little bit. And it gets to the point and, and to go back to that job as a kitchen salesman, where I am at the stage where I'm just a shell of myself, literally a shell of myself. I'm unmotivated. I'm uninspired. I'm probably quite dull and boring to be around. Um, and you're right. If you, if you take these in, important passions out of your life, you take a part of yourself away as well. And, and f- fortunately for me, you know, my wife understands that she sees that and, and that helps with her supporting me do what I do as well. Yeah. Like, didn't mean to make this all about me (laughs) like it's a great opportunity to talk about myself on the podcast with you um when i moved to british columbia lived there for three years um i remember one of the bits of feedback when i came back was from like multiple people they're like you seem different and you're like giving me a real hug right now and it's almost like i'd lost that that ability to connect because i was so disconnected from doing these adventurous things then i spent three years out terrifying myself most weekends and doing things that push myself and then you're like oh i'm a i've topped up that bank of of wisdom yeah it, it, it is that exactly it's turning yourself into a better version of yourself and and you know we we were we were touching on this briefly before the call in in that transition process and of coming back home after after these experiences and navigating the challenges that that, that presents sometimes, um, and I think sometimes you know it, it can be strange in that you're coming home and everything in a sense everything is the same, but you are very different, and and that is a difficult thing to to navigate at, at, at times. And I think that's one of the things which ultimately draws you back to those adventurous experiences because somehow normal life just um, just can't can't deliver the same the same feeling the same emotions the same intensity same wildness the expeditions can i think that's probably a part of where the addiction comes from as well yeah i almost feel like the closest you can get to it with like real life is entrepreneurship running your own yeah. business to a degree because there, there are those extreme highs and lows it feels like there's a lot on the line um, i'm gonna guess the elements of fatherhood do that for you too but there's yeah. still there's something that's is not quite the same as looking around and assessing the terrain and thinking like okay well these are the decisions i've got to make yeah yeah that that's true and i think you know i i'm i'm always aiming to get to a place where i can feel full contentment at home and there's a there's a mountaineer i forget his name now but he wrote he wrote a book saying um finding joy in the valleys or something along those lines. But it's essentially this idea of, of finding happiness and contentment in those lulls or in those dips in between the, the peaks or the adventures or the exciting times in our lives. Um, so I think, I think that probably is the ultimate quest. 
is to mm. if you can find total joy in those lulls and dips. Um, that's certainly something I, I continue to work on personally. Um, and, and you're right in that I think one way that you can do that is use the skills that you've gained through these life enhancing experiences and then implement them at home, whether that is in building a business or in helping to raise a family um, or, you know, or spending time with friends. It's it's then applying it and, and finding ways to to build those around you and, and build your life at home as well. Yeah, finding that meaning within that it's super super difficult, but it's um I think it seems to be the most worthwhile way to do it. Nietzsche has this idea of like you got to view life as like a Greek tragedy, and in a Greek tragedy, the the down moments they have salience to the, who the person becomes, the hero becomes in the long run too. Like they the the hardest trials, the the, the challenges they face, even the boring parts, is there for a reason. And everything's in your life for a reason. And that's almost the, the approach you have to take. Because otherwise you're like, when am I going to get out? When am I going to um, stop the itchy feet again? Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. And we never have total total control over the events that are going to happen to us. And we, you know, it, it may be that for whatever reason, I'm never able to go on an adventure again. And then, of course, it is about making that internal shift and and finding joy in those lulls and lows. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a powerful quote. When you got out of Uzbekistan, what did you change about the way you planned trips, if anything? It's It's been a, a learning curve, really, in that sometimes you need to make mistakes uh in order in order to really learn and you know something like that something so trivial as literally a few grams of uh, of a drug which is perfectly legal here in the uk could could lead to all of those those issues in uzbekistan um but now when i am leave, leading expeditions um and and you know guiding people on experiences in what are some of the most hostile, wildest places on earth, places like Iraq and Syria and Yemen and Congo. Um, it really is about getting down to the very most granular details of understanding risk and understanding um, just what is, yeah, w- what is safe and what is possible to do. And and so there's, yeah, there's a number of things which I always do now on my expeditions to try and mitigate those risks. Um, and, one of those would be, you know, to give you a few a few key points there. Uh, one of those would be having excellent local contacts, excellent local guides. Um, whether or not they come with you, just having somebody in the know in that place that really is essential, and it's gotten me out of trouble so many occasions. Or they've told me things which I would never have known. And like what kind yeah, of stuff? I can give you. A, Lots of examples. To give you one specific example, I was um, traveling uh, in Siberia 2020, did a big solo expedition across Lake Baikal, big frozen lake, Um, you know, done all my research, spoken to a couple of people who've been there, Googled basically every single page I could find about Lake Baikal, had planned my route. It was going to be 16 days on the ice. Thought, okay, I know as much as I know. I've never felt so prepared. And then I had some conversations with a local guy and I showed him my map and I shared my plans with him. And he said, oh, this point here, there's some hot springs underneath the lake, which melts the lake from below. So the lake's only a couple of centimeters. The ice is only a couple of centimeters thick. And every year, people fall through there and sometimes die. 
And I would never have known that information and would have walked straight through that area. So it, it's, it's things like that. And I could give you examples in other places, but I think the internet is an amazing tool right now. But on so many occasions now, having good personal contacts in, in, in certain places has just proved really invaluable. How do you find those contacts? So as, asking around. So if I find somebody who's been to that region before, you know, an, another adventure, another traveler, I will ask them uh, if they've got a good, a good contact, you know, so a bit of outreach there. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes a bit of online research. Um, when the, neither of those are possibilities, it's even going through Instagram and, and searching for a very specific location, see, seeing who's posted there, uh, see if somebody's going there regularly, reaching out to them. Um, so it's really, you know, there's certainly places where, you know, as far as I can tell, no outsiders have been there and certainly haven't documented it. So that is where I've really needed to dig deep, but I've still managed to find somebody. And you ask around enough, you can always find somebody. Um, I, I would say that's a really important step. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that, that's a really interesting thing, like personally to, to cover mm-hmm. that and go, okay, how can I, how can I like go through Instagram? and pick those points out what are the other mistakes that people make in adventures like what are the common ones or the big ones um so generally speaking lack, lack of preparation i would say is is a is a common mistake whether that is physical preparation i.e uh not being physically fit enough or not being trained for the specifics of their challenge you mean technical um, skills or yeah so it might it might be technical skills or if it's if it's a particular endurance challenge, maybe on skis, maybe on a bike, and, and they've just not done enough of that specific training in order to to build the energy reserves required. There's a famous quote which I kind of always remind myself of, which is stamina equals safety. Um, and I think that's a really good mm-hmm. quote to remember when you're on expeditions, because sometimes that is your last line of defense, is just having the stamina to get just yourself out, out off the mountain or out of the situation. Um, other mistakes, I think, um, you know, to, it probably crosses over slightly with the local guides element, but it's it's thinking that you can do it all yourself. And, you know, I, I when I first went into expeditions, uh, um, I definitely had this sense that, okay, a few things had gone my way. I felt confident. I felt fit. I felt prepared. But I still came unstuck because I wasn't reaching out to people. I wasn't doing the right research. It's almost the difference for me between having a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Initially, I had this fixed mindset where I thought, okay, I've got, I think I've got the skills. I think I've got the abilities. I'm sure I could just go and do it. And, and, you know, that's when I had, I had problems in my earlier years. And, and now I have no shame whatsoever in reaching out to people and having conversations in, and it still might be, as I say, it still might be a completely solo effort once I'm out there. But I think you're just leaving yourself vulnerable to certain risks if you're not doing that outreach and, and figuring out where the problems might lie. Um, because like my Siberian example, you might just be walking right across a very dangerous place, uh, which you don't know about without without that uh, proper research. Um, so I think also, yeah, having a bit of that growth mindset as well is, is really important. And uh, something else I, I, I speak to people about, particularly when I'm guiding groups, 
often one of the, the last things I'll say before we set off up the mountain is um, this mountain is that there is no place for egos on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And so please, you know, leave your egos at home. And, and often I'm talking to people who might be CEOs or very successful people and, you know, wouldn't be used to, to being told that. But I think once you're out in, in the great outdoors, really we are so insignificant and so unpowerful that we need to be very, very respectful of the environments we're in. And to, to not do that can be a critical mistake. Um, so yeah, no, no egos on expeditions is what I always say. That humility piece is hard for high achievers who want to consistently push and push and push and are used to being highly competent in a, an environment that they understand well. And like I'm talking about myself as well like I'm, I'm used to being a high achiever but and i'm used to kind of having a very um high level of effectiveness in my like work environment but then when you go to an environment like well wherever you're headed and you have fresh eyes there and it's like mm-hmm. it, it's a new experience and if you haven't been in that environment for all the months back to back to back to back to back it's um you you have to treat it like a beginner again and that's what's very difficult yeah it's it's so true and it's actually something i've observed firsthand which is often where i do have what you would consider high performing people whether they're very physically fit in in one domain or or high performing in in the business space and then they're they're out on expeditions sometimes they have a harder job adjusting to this new harsh environment than somebody you would consider, you know, maybe not a super high performer, but they're they're going about their daily lives, they're they're, they're doing a more ordinary job, let's say, um, but they don't have that that sense of ego, and so they're more willing to ask those questions. They're, they're more willing to be vulnerable at the outset. Nine times out of ten, the high achievers reach that point, but it might take a few days longer than than the others, uh, and so. I always find that quite interesting is those those elements of self-development, that those journeys that people go on. And it's always a very individual journey, but almost always they reach the same destination just in Are their own way. Are there any particular examples of that that stand out of like people's transformations within a within a trip? I mean, I, I've I've witnessed this so many times and one of the I mean, when I first got into leading over expedition overseas expeditions, it was with young people. And they were, yeah, 16, 17, 18 years old. They'd never been away from home before. Uh, you know, sometimes they'd have it, had everything done for them. And now they're in a world where they need to do everything. They need to be physically prepared. They need to work as a team, take ownership, take leadership roles. And I'd take them away from their parents and bring them back three, four weeks later. And the parents would literally say to me, who is this child you've brought back to me? And it, and for them, it is a very, very powerful, powerful experience for, for young people. Um, when I think about older people um, or sort of adults who go on expeditions, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many people who I've taken on expeditions and have come back into, into the real world or their working world with just this elevated sense of motivation. And one of the things I often do, because I, I think, you know, adventure, you can't just, you can't just sort of draw a line as you get back home. For me, I always like to check in with people a few weeks or a few months down the line, just see, yeah, how the experience might have 
quite have affected them. And so many times they tell me, you know, I, f- I feel so much more driven. I feel so much more motivated um, and just have that, that hunger, which is sort of reawoken inside of them. And as I say, the, you know, the diversity of people I've taken on these expeditions, probably from about 40 different countries, um, around about 500 people, I would say, uh, right through from CEOs to billionaires to terminal cancer patients to reformed criminals. So the widest variety of people, and yet expeditions seem to have the same effects on all of them. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm very interested in that topic. I think to, to go slightly philosophical on it, why why is that? Why does it have a profound effect on people? I think that is adventure is something which is deeply human. This innate desire to explore, that is why humans have populated the globe and now live from the Arctic to the deserts. That is why we've explored space and the deep ocean. And even in this in this modern world, you know, it is our desire to explore which has led us to creating AI and skyscrapers and space shuttles and and technological advancements. That all comes from the curiosity of the unknown and the need to explore. What I do and what people do who come with me on expeditions is do that in a very literal sense. But I think that's the key thing. It's tapping into something which is really deeply human. It's almost... Uh, and I'm going to hate myself for saying this, a spiritual journey. It's like, it's a journey into who you really are. And it's a weird thing, but the thing that's coming to mind as you were talking about that, um, the process of building up to a, a large challenge and then going through it and the kind of lessons you learn on that. And then you come back and integrate that into your life and you check in with these people. It's almost like people going to Peru and doing an, and doing an ayahuasca journey. They'll yeah. like go away. They come out to it. It's the spiritual process. They go through something life changing and difficult, and, um, and it challenges their perceptions and their beliefs about who they are. And then they come back and they have to integrate those lessons into reality and their real life. It's like it's like we have that setting. Is I always yeah. think of it like um, I've got this like space in my life that has to be fulfilled with these kind of challenges because otherwise it's um. I'm not growing, but also I'm not developing mm. as a person. Yeah, I I, um, I think it's, it's important to point out something there. Uh, you mentioned ayahuasca. You know, what's one of the key things people say they get from ayahuasca? It's ego death. Yeah. You know, that. so it's in a way it's very similar to expeditions. It is, mm-hmm. especially when people really embrace that. And I think no matter what, you're going to embrace it at some point. Um, you know, when, when you're approaching the top of the mountain and the altitude is, is really wearing you down and the several days of, of hard effort are draining you physically and you've not had enough sleep and you need help, you need to be vulnerable, your ego is going to ebb away. And that's when you find out what, what you're really made of. And that's when you can make deeper human connections with those around you. Um, so, yeah, interesting to draw that analogy. Just a quick one from me. If you haven't already downloaded the Adventurepreneur's Ultimate Route Planning and Navigation Guide to Absolute Freedom and Doing More Cool Shit, what are you waiting for? In this totally free guide, I give you the frameworks that I've taught to hundreds of adventurepreneurs that set their life up for more freedom so they can get out and live a life full of adventure. It's going to teach you how to set your days and weeks up in order to maximize your time doing the things you love 
and how to perform at your best day in, day out, and burst through your limitations. It's packed full of actionable steps and you can get it by going to bit.ly slash adventure.nav. Once again, that's bit.ly slash adventure-nav. It reveals all your flaws. <laughs> that's a really uncomfortable mm. thing to happen. But like, you, I can point back to countless times like in a in a tent where I just want to go, fuck this, I'm turning over and going back to bed or, yeah, um, yeah and sorry, I've got a fly attacking me. Um, yeah, you, you kind of get these desires to like um, play it safe or to withdraw from the challenge that comes up with some people. And then other people go into this place where it's like, I've got to take control of this and there's no control in the mountain. You've got to learn your, like, learn your lesson. And it's almost like the mountain gives you a lesson that is shaped for you at that time because you've come up against your limitation. Yeah, yeah, completely. And, you know, I think you could speak to, you could certainly speak to me about it and probably any mountaineer or adventurer, they will all have failures. You know, I could sit here for an hour and tell you about the many times I've turned back from a summit or I've not made it to my original goal or, you know, I've had to have had to reduce or limit what I'm doing. And that that is that is the truth of it. If, if you set out into into the great outdoors, into remote environments and expect everything to go your way perfectly according to plan. You know, once you start pushing things, it's just not going to happen. You need to be able to adapt, to adjust, to to be willing to sort of eat a bit of humble pie and uh, and to let yourself uh, go with the flow and and find new ways to to get through those problems. When you're talking about failures that teach you a lot and have changed who you are what events come to mind so one i mean there's a few stories i could give here one that really stands out was the year after i got back from this big asia expedition so you know this journey in asia proved to be a great success overall i made it to the end completed my objective it was four months of hard travel lots of mountains climbed lots of things overcome and got back from that with such a sense of confidence. And again, this is probably tapping into the fixed mindset point. Um, such a sense of confidence and belief in my own abilities that I just felt unstoppable in a sense. You know, I felt like I could go and take on any challenge and I could just, through my own innate abilities, just conquer it. And so the next year, I planned a challenge to um, Morocco. And it was a country I'd been to before, felt quite familiar with it, spent a couple of weeks trekking in the mountains, um, was not particularly intimidated by the challenge. It was about, I was planning to do, it was actually a world first journey. So it was trekking the full length of the Atlas Mountains. It's about 400 odd miles from the edge of the Sahara Desert all the way to the Atlantic coast. And I thought, yeah, no problem. I can, I can do that. And you know, didn't put the right amount of research in, didn't take certain safety precautions. And two days in, I'd covered, I covered about 40 miles. I had a cripplingly heavy rucksack around about 35 to 40 kilograms, you know, just way. So I was trying to do, you know, I was trying to take the completely the wrong approach of being self-supported essentially. Um, when you know that is a tactic you would use more in an arctic region or a mountain environment um so i was taking way too much stuff way too much food um 
I was wearing a brand new pair of boots, so, you know, complete rookie error. Blisters were already flaring up. So, you know, just a catalogue of mistakes here. And so two days in, my feet are full of blisters, my body is is battered, um, it's 35-degree heat, and, you know, probably drinking about a litre of water an hour because you're sweating so much, carrying this heavy load in the sun all day. And out, and but the most critical mistake was not thinking carefully about where I was going to get water. And essentially, I, I had a rudimentary map. I thought, well, I'll just go from uh, what looks like water source to water source. All seems fine on here. Sure, it'll be no problem. Uh, and as I got to this particular point, now twenty miles past the previous known water supply, and down to less than a liter of water. Uh, lo and behold, the riverbed was completely bone dry. And now I'm stuck in a, a very remote valley, uninhabited valley, uh, with with no water now, 20 miles from the nearest known water source in 35 degree heat or so. And so very quickly, it turned into a scary situation, made more so that when I, when I sit, sat down underneath the shade of a tree to think about my options, the solar panel, which was charging my phone, as I sat down, uh, snagged to the wire, which snapped off the, the charging port in my phone. Um, and so then I was left with like 12% battery on my phone, no other way of charging it. And effectively, no, I didn't even know who I would call in that situation because I hadn't done the right planning. And so, you know, I was really in Shit's Creek then. Um, it felt like a very, very scary situation. And so... You know, for a while, I saw a couple of what looked like shepherd's huts on the hillside, was shouting up to them, wandered up to them, no signs of life, and thought, okay, I'm going to have to, uh, just going to have to maybe sit and wait out the sun. Uh, once dusk falls, then maybe I can abandon my stuff, take the bare minimum, and try and make it back 20 miles. That was already a stretch because I was already dehydrated, didn't know if I'd be able to do it. But that was basically the only option I felt like I had. If I was to carry on, there was no guarantee that there would be water ahead. And so I sat there for four or five hours, just feeling quite scared. And, um, you know, like it could end very badly because I'm really, really on my own in that situation and got extraordinarily lucky when a old pickup truck came bouncing down the valley and a couple of shepherds were, were driving to town and I just jumped in front of it and uh, managed to, to get in the car and they drove me back to the town with all my stuff. And, you know, they, they probably didn't realize it. Maybe they did when I left them a big stack of money <laughs> to, to, uh, at the end of that ride. But, you know, they may well have saved my life on that day. And so when you think about lessons learned, I mean, wow, that would that day was a, a big, big learning curve. You know, there's probably no two days of expeditions where I've learned so much about the importance of communications, the importance of water, uh, the importance of having backup plans, the importance of local contacts. I mean, so importance of kit and, and having the right types of kit. I, I could go on, but it is through these mistakes and I got lucky, I got out of that one, that we can learn, yeah, the, the most powerful lessons sometimes. What have you changed in your preparation process because of that? Everything. Yeah, everything. So all of those points I just mentioned, um, I, I've changed my my complete approach to planning expeditions based on that failure. To be way more thorough, or have you got almost like a checklist of things like okay, water company, like shelter, water, like kind of go through those steps. Where's it happening every night? Where's it happening every day? What are contingency plans? Like, what's that that 
planning process like? Yeah, so I mean, t- maybe to talk about a specific expedition where I can give examples of those things. So Lake Baikal, which I touched on earlier, this was a 16-day 16 16-day 16 solo expedition, uh, walking with a 60-kilogram pulk, um, doing about 26 miles a day, so essentially a marathon a day, hauling a, a big heavy pulk on my own in sort of temperatures of minus 25, minus 30. And, and so... And some of those places, I was 100 miles from any civilization. So, you know, you really cannot rely on any outside help whatsoever. I needed to be completely self-sufficient. So I went down to a a really fine detail when it came to the kit and what I was carrying. Um, And so I had had backups of of key items of kit, sort of backup stoves. I had the very first top thing on, on my, in my pork bag was sort of an emergency set of uh, clean clothing and dry bag. So if I did go in the ice, that's the very first thing I'd get to, followed by the stove and the tent, which I'd need to get set up. I had around my neck a a little device, which again was a tip from the local from the local contact, and it was essentially two spikes in a, nice. uh, in a little plastic, sort of almost like those uh, sweet corn grabbers or whatever you call them. And so if you did fall on the ice, you can open that up and claw your way out because yeah, the ice surface is hard as steel. There'd be no way of getting traction with your hands. Um, so it was little things like that. I had that around my neck. When it came to communications, I had a satellite phone, GPS tracking device, which was leaving a, a dot every 10 minutes, uh, which also had an SOS button. I was subscribed to a global rescue center. So that's is that Garmin, inReach? Garmin yeah, inReach, okay. which I now take on all my expeditions. Absolutely invaluable piece of kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had two mobile phones, one with a Russian SIM, uh, lots, I mean, I had a solar charger, a couple of backup chargers, um, so that, uh, and any, essentially any key item of kit I had, I had extras in reserve, extra food, extra fuel, um, so that in any eventuality, I'd be able to, to get myself out of there. And this was sort of rigorously devised this, this list. Um, and then again, speaking to a couple of people who've been out on the lake, crossing the list off with them, making sure that I wasn't missing anything. You know, there's a couple of things they mentioned to me, which are good ideas. So I added those in. Um, and yeah, it's really going down to those, those fine details, uh, to make, sh- and, and also having contingency plans in place. Like at, at any given point, if I get into trouble, what am I going to do? And so, again, the local contacts gave me some great, great pointers. So in various villages where you did, where you did pass, I, I had a key list of contacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the more remote areas, again, from the local contacts, I had a couple of helicopter rescue services that I could call. He also told me that they would, they would only come to you if you could pay them in cash. You know, this being rushes, <laughs> I guess that's how things go. So I needed to have a big lump of cash in my sled in the eventuality in dry bags hel- I hope. yeah in dry bags yeah um <laughs> in the eventuality i need a helicopter rescue if i hadn't spoken to him i wouldn't have known that maybe i'd have been in a sticky situation called him and they said oh you've no cash we're not going to come so um yeah it's getting down to a really granular detail and thinking through you you've almost got to think through all of the worst case scenarios and then build it back from there how do you get out of that situation uh if that happens so they 
there's so many avenues I could go down here mm. because like A, I'm finding this just personally invaluable for, for prepping things. Um, but B, there's um, some mistakes that I've made before going too heavy, thinking about too many contingencies and thinking, okay, I've got way too much shit with me um, to to kind of um, to make this a viable or no, not even to make it viable, to make it, it makes it unnecessarily uncomfortable or difficult. Yeah. So how do you identify that limitation or that kind of crossover point where you've gone, actually now I'm dragging an Arga stove with me mm-hmm. because I really fancy the warmth in this situation. Like, how do you stop that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think you you have, of course, got to draw a line somewhere when it, when it comes to what kit you're taking. And I always find that those last few hours before a trip are the most dangerous. Those are the hours where you think, oh, you start chucking stuff I'll just, in. Yeah, I'll show this will be fine. I'll just chuck this in, and this might be useful. Um, but it's being being prepared in advance. I think one key piece of advice is is test the kit. Um, definitely have tested each of those items of kit, especially if it's new, um, so that you know what its weaknesses might be. Uh, sometimes it's just a case. Say if you you know I've just got back from a big bike trip and. Of course, you know, I wasn't going to take a spare bike, but I'd identified all of the items which were most likely to break or most likely to go wrong. Anything bigger than that, you know, I'd have to probably source a, a local bike uh, alternatively. Uh, and actually, that only weighed in at around one and a half kilos, all of those spares and repairs, including tires and, and spokes and things like that. Um, so it, it's it's drawing a, a realistic line, testing kit, Um and focusing on, on what, what you could repair, you know, having, having things like duct tape and cable ties and, uh, and cables and sewing kits and things like that, you know, often things can be repaired on the road as well. Um, and just thinking about what is the most critically important. There are some things which, yeah, if, if, you, if you rip a big hole in your down jacket, you can fix it. But if, you're, if your stove broke, breaks and now you've no way of melting water, you've no way of rehydrating your meals, then it's, it's a bit of a bigger problem. So that's where I'd have a stove repair kit or even a spare stove, things like that. Um, and then you've got to factor in how how remote are you? Can you get resupplies locally? Um, how many days away from rescue would you be at any certain point? Factoring all that in. If you're only ever going to be a day away from help or from civilization, you can cut everything right, right back. If you're going to be really remote for days and weeks on end, then you probably want to increase it a little bit as well. Nice. nice. When you were talking about pogs there, it reminded me of a story where I did not do the requisite prep. And um, the the advice you get and is almost beaten into in training, I think in any element of the military bit in the Royal Marines, is like you put everything in a dry bag and then your yeah. dry bags go in a massive dry bag so that if i don't know a round goes through it then it's just going to take out one small piece but like hopefully everything else is is dry yeah. and the one time that i decided not to follow that advice and just go fuck it i can wing this <laughs> was when i was doing um I, I, we um we were doing a big ski tour up to crossing a lake um up to three days around it's called sphinx bay and to go up and do some objectives and climb the last um volcano in the line of um in, in the pacific northwest really yeah. like cool adventure to do amazing got 21k up 
and we didn't put runners on the polk because um, we made our own which is an amateur move and then um, <laughs> it just slipped sideways into a stream soaked oh, everything sleeping bag stoked and uh, soaked absolutely just before about to um to bed down for the night and it was a horrendous <sighs> journey back um and then we just had to turn around and come back and it's yeah. that proper preparation and planning that's the old seven p's yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, probably similar to my Morocco ex- experience, I'm sure you wouldn't do that again. You know, it's, <laughs> it's learning things the hard way, but some, mm. sometimes uh, those, are the, those are the messages that stick. Yeah, and those messages that stick, they end up being the cliches that you've heard like, time and time again. The thing that, I've, um, that I'm kind of known for in my group of mates who I do this kind of stuff is coming out with shitty cliche phrases like the stitch and time saves nine and you're like oh yeah that wisdom does actually apply to this <laughs> yeah uh yeah i've got a few of those i need to try and hold back because you just like you said <laughs> I, i'm probably that guy in my group of friends as well yeah, yeah trying to find the wisdom what makes a good team member or what makes a good team good question um so if you are going on an expedition you're going to be remote you're going to be relying on each other um, you know, if I was looking for the ideal teammate, um, I would want somebody who is who is calm under pressure. That is probably right at the top, calmness under pressure. I don't want somebody who's going to be highly, highly reactive or highly argumentative um, because you're going to be spending a lot of time with that person. Um, a, a good problem solver, a logical thinker, somebody who doesn't complain and moan, um, you know, at a very simple level, because that negativity will draw you, will, will really, uh, yeah, sort of, um, really stop you in your tracks and, and end up filtering into you, you and your psyche as well. Um, somebody who is, has certainly got the physical fitness, physical capabilities and, and if needed, the technical knowledge, technical sort of skills, but yeah, I would say that they're a bit lower down than those real key character traits of, of calmness, of humility, of kind of getting the job done. You want somebody who, who shares the workload, you know, somebody who's, who's going to chip in and, and, and work hard. Um, those are some of the key traits I'd look for. Nice. What makes a bad team member? In some ways, it's going to be the opposite of these, this list. So it's somebody who's highly reactive, who really kind of crumbles under pressure. You're going to be in a lot of high pressure situations. And so if you can't, if you can't deal with that innately, you know, it's going to cause problems. Uh, you don't, I, I wouldn't want to be some, with somebody who's sort of highly, highly aggressive or highly confrontational, particularly if you're going to places well, which which might be a bit more hostile, where you certainly wouldn't want to escalate any situations. You know, my sort of go to, and I can think of many scenarios where I've had interactions with with local people, and there's been, well, let's say, like guns and knives and things involved, and you certainly do not want to escalate the situation out there. Uh, and so that that I think is an important trait. Um, and and yeah, somebody who doesn't who doesn't pull their weight that that would be you know a big a big no no. So um, 
yeah, and somebody you can have a good laugh with as well. You know, you, you, you want it to be you want it to be an enjoyable enjoyable experience. So it's not not a lot, right? It's, uh, maybe, maybe you need to, maybe there needs to be some sort of a Tinder for adventure buddies. I don't know. Is that a business yeah, with some idea? sort of psychographic testing yeah. built in, so you can yeah. really see? Do you go and like test recce's with people and go like, okay, we're we're going to go out for a day climbing just so I can see what you're like? Yeah, yeah, I have done that. Yeah, I have done that for sure. Um, I would say that most of the where I've been with people, it's usually where I've known them for a long time. Um, but that said, you know, when I am guiding groups, often I'm meeting them for the first time in country. That that is a slightly different dynamic. You know, I think I think what you're talking about here is more these expedition partnerships rather than guiding guided teams of of tourists. Um, but yeah, when it comes to those expedition partnerships. I would I would not hesitate to go and do a weekend weekend trekking or a weekend climbing or something like that just to make sure that you're going to click because you you don't want to find out one day two days into a month long remote expedition that you just are not a good match. And talking about people, what people from your various adventures and trips stand out to you? Like, are there people who like are just in your mind as like that was. A different character that was a surprise that was an enjoyable experience meeting that person i mean the, one person comes to my mind straight away when you ask that question and he was the happiest person i've ever met and he had terminal cancer <laughs> and that's the you know the slightly more shocking part of that sentence and he had probably about three or four months to live 85 year old guy he had traveled to about 170 countries and he was gradually ticking off his last remaining countries hoping to visit everywhere in the world and he'd he'd had a successful business and he was just selling off his life possessions and to fund to fund his final travel so i actually took him to iraq and so we were were in iraq northern iraq in kurdistan for a week uh, his insurance bill not only did he have terminal cancer he had a pacemaker in his heart he had a stoma um you know, he's in his 80s, he's got other health complications. But, uh, and, and the insurance bill, his insurance bill for that week in Iraq was £5,000. Um, you know, such were his, his health health complications. But as I said, he was by far the happiest person I've ever met. He, You know, you could just look at him and he had this almost like, you know, if you imagine a picture of the Dalai Lama, he's got just a slight smile on his face the whole time. It's like he's just breathing in every moment and for me, spending time with somebody like that over the course of a week and anything we did, and this was more of a cultural trip than an expedition, but anything that we, he did, he was first off the bus. He was he was doing things the long way around. He wasn't taking shortcuts. He was uh, having those interactions, just immersing himself into the present moment. And for me, that was really powerful just to sp- spend a week with him. Um, yeah, amazing experience. Yeah, what did you learn from him? I, the big one was, was trying to be present and I I found it interesting. I mean, even, even traveling with him, we had a couple of other travelers on the trip. Uh, I remember distinctly and and all they were talking about was where they're going to go next and where they're going to go next. And and then they're going to do this. And actually they barely even spent any time enjoying where they were right now. And yet he was, he was sat there with this little smile on his face, um, just soaking it all in. And so, 
I think, um, you know, adventure in particular and travel and, and any experience really involves, involves a commitment of time and energy. And so if, if you're not enjoying it and, and appreciating it, then you're probably missing the whole point of, of why you're doing it. So it, it was a reminder to do that for me. You know, these, these expeditions involve a lot of hard work to get there. So when you're on there, when you are there and actually when, when you are back home, try as much as possible just to appreciate the moment and, and, um, and soak it all in. There's this, um, Buddhist teacher or former Buddhist teacher, cause he's dead now, Tish Han, And he has a book. I can't remember what the book's called, but the opening chapter is essentially about when you're washing dishes, just be washing dishes because mm. you may be thinking about, I think, can't remember what he uses. It's like a cup of tea or something that's coming up. And that you may be thinking, I just want to wash the dishes so I can have that cup of tea. But then you're having the cup of tea and you're thinking about, I want to be off doing this thing. And it's, you're always about the next thing rather than about doing the thing that you're doing now. And it seems like when that's combined with that kind of, thirst for life that that guy had yeah it seems like that like that combination like i'm gonna like squeeze this lemon dry i'm gonna get all the juice out of this experience that i possibly can Mm. and you see people not doing that the whole time people who just kind of like they're rushing from thing to thing to thing to thing it's about ticking boxes rather than this experience that i'm getting right now sounds like a a cool guy to be following around yeah yeah completely yeah who are your mentors or people that you look up to in this world? Um, there are certain people who, you know, maybe I don't know them personally, but they're people who I've always admired for, for the way they go about what they do. So, I mean, one that springs to mind, uh, a guy called Ben Saunders, British, uh, British polar explorer. Really, you know, he's he's a record-breaking explorer. I think he spent more time on Arctic or polar expeditions than anybody else. Uh, might want to fact-check that one, but it's there or thereabouts. Um, and the way he goes about things, I know he's an extremely meticulous planner. You know, he's somebody I have, I've had a couple of conversations with. And, uh, and also a certain, I think, stoicism in there as well. Probably the people I look up to most are, are like that. They're the more humble, humble adventurers who are just doing what they do because of that raw passion. And, um, you know, I, I don't like to sort of ring fence people, but, you know, people who are only doing it for fame and the glory or something, I think I think there's always, yeah, there's, there's different motivations. And, and as, as a spectator, seeing what they do, you can you can see where those differences lie, but for me, it's it's the hum, uh, the humble people, those who are uh, meticulous planners, who are pushing the boundaries, who are driven by passion. Those are the people I'm inspired by. Uh, also, another reference. I mean, Sir Ronald Fiennes went to listen to one of his talks recently. Just sublime what he's achieved and his stories. You know, absolutely incredible and a great sense of humor as well. Um, yeah, the, the, there are many people out there who I'm. I mean, Tim Howell, who you had on uh, on as well. Uh, he's somebody I've known for a couple of years now, and I think one of the things great about Tim is just the sheer amount of things that he's doing all the time. It feels like he's he's always out climbing mountains or base jumping, or it's just constant. And again, I think he's somebody who's really driven by that passion. Yeah. He was a really cool guy and he has that, that thirst for life, that energy of just like, I want to go and do some cool shit. And I'm here to like, just getting to the point in his military career where he did. 
and then going right now is the next thing rather than kind of sitting on those laurels because there's plenty of guys who and i'm not taking anything away from them because they've progressed far further in their military career than i ever did but to get to that point and then to sit back and be like it's almost like you kind of start getting comfortable and yeah. that's where things start creeping and i had this um this client as well he went to a Randolph Fines talk mm. and he said it was just basically a bloke sitting down at the front with these incredible stories and without any notes or anything just went like here's a thousand stories that are going to blow your mind yeah. I, I love that idea of him yeah and what was great was as he was talking i don't think his expression changed for an hour and a half <laughs> and yet he had that entire room in stitches he had people's yeah. palms sweating he had them on the end of the chair because his stories speak for themselves you know um, mm-hmm. so that was very cool yeah there are so many points that i want to go over and i'm having to to choose pick and choose as we go through you mentioned a fantastic or an, an integral part of prepping your journey is to physically prep yourself and i'm guessing part of that is prepping your mind as well so how do you prepare your body and your mind for these kind of adventures so first physically i will look at whatever that expedition will be and try and train as specifically as i can for it um to come back to that siberian expedition you know it's not always possible there's not many frozen lakes uh, up here in Lancashire. And so what that meant was getting hold of a, an old sled, essentially, putting some weights in it and going dragging it around a field at night uh, in order to simulate actually dragging a sled. At uh, night because no one was going to see you. Exactly, exactly yeah. that. <laughs> With a head torch, yeah. yeah. Uh, if someone did see me, they'd probably turn around and run away. Um, <laughs> but yeah, being as specific as possible, I think generally speaking, when you're on expeditions, it's it's quite rare that you're, you're at maximum capacity in terms of physical maximum capacity. It's often a long, slow grind, you know, whether it's mountain climbing or skiing or cycling. It's, it's much more, yeah, on, on the endurance side for most expeditions. So my training generally replicates that. So a lot of the time during, during sort of normal weeks at home, I will be training at least once a day and, and often twice a day. And that is a combination of running, cycling, mountain walking, climbing, gym work. Um, and, and then I will kind of change that up depending on the specific challenge that I've got. Um, We're about to get real geeky with this. Um, what yeah. are you doing in terms of cardio baseline stuff? Are you going, okay, I'm going to stick like zone two cardio, that point mm. where I can breathe. Are you doing sprints? Are you do it like, what does that look like? So I've been, when it comes to the cardio side, I've been roughly following the 80-20 principle. So, you know, if that's something you're familiar with, where listeners who don't know, about 80% of your weekly training, say, is in in the zone one, zone two field. And and then about 20% will be more high intensity, zone four, a little bit of zone five, maybe. And and so that's roughly what I've been doing. So yeah, about 80% pretty easy. Um, pretty easy long runs, long runs, long slow bike rides, that sort of thing, and then and then um, sprint sessions, interval sessions to to make up the rest. Um, so I, I find that that gives a nice combination. And actually, you know, when I f- was getting into training a bit more a few years ago, I was going hard all the time, and mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just not sustainable. And actually, when you realise that you can still make physical gains by 
uh, going less hard or, you know, going doing your own two stuff. Especially long-term gains. Yeah. It's a bit of a relief, you know, and (laughs) and I find it's much easier to stay disciplined with training Mm -hmm. when you're not absolutely killing yourself every single session. Yeah. Yeah. And what about the strength or gym stuff? Like I I know we're getting super granular here, but like, A, I'm interested and I think other people will be interested too. So like, what does that look like? For me, I, I do a lot of body weight work. So, you know, here I have pull-up bars, dip bars, rings, kettlebells, free weights. Um, so it will be lots of circuits with any combination of that. Uh, sometimes would add in weights, um, so sort of a, a weight vest. Uh, but I would say 75% of my gym work is, is body weight or weighted body weight. Um, for me, that, that just works. And I've never really had injuries doing that. A big part of what I do is is reducing the risk of injuries because you know essentially I, I need to be I need to be fit and well to be to be doing my my job and leading expeditions um, with a little bit of uh, heavier lifting in. Although that said, I've I've always you know maybe people will be raising their eyebrows here and, and but I've never really got into the heavy squats and deadlifts and things like that. Again, when I, when I have doubled with that, I've just had little strains here and there. But anyway, so for me, it's about it's about limiting risk of injuries, lots of body weight work, um, and and just trying to stay just trying to stay injury free. Yeah, got you, got you. I'd be interested to um, to see what could happen with you with a, like a little bit of dedicated like high end strength stuff with like within reason as well, because yeah. I always feel like if you're if each step is using X percentage of your maximal strength, and then that's X minus five percentage of your, there's like, you're just using like a lower point each time. It's like your strength training for all endurance athletes. Um, but yeah, yeah. Like, I could hammer that point all day. I, no, I think it's, I think it's a, a good point. And, you know, probably at some point I will, I will go down that road. I think I've just always been put off by the uh, yeah the, by risk, the risk of, of throwing yeah. out my spine or something yeah, like definitely. that. But you know, may- maybe that's uh, an unwarranted worry anyway. Yeah, there's, I, that's a completely reasonable concern when it's your livelihood too. What about preparing your mind? Like, how do you get in the right place? Do you have any meditation processes, journaling? Any kind of um, is the prep itself a process? Like, talk to me about that. I, I certainly find that going deep into the preparation is is a process and there's certainly as i am preparing a lot of visualization mm-hmm. so before when i talked about preparation you know it almost sounded quite analytical but i really will when i am imagining or when i'm thinking about problems i might encounter i'm trying to put myself there in that situation as much as possible and and you know there's been a couple of occasions where i'm i'm then there out on expedition and the situation almost feels more familiar, even though it, it, it actually is brand new because I've had that period of visualization. So I find, I find that is a, is a really powerful tool. Um, I think for me, just, just doing a, a number of, you know, well, all in probably 15 years, 14, 15 years of expeditions now, when I think back to my university days, um, regularly doing these expeditions and regularly exposing myself to difficult situations has certainly helped me build that that sort of mental mental fortitude i suppose one thing i'm interested in here is 
when you decided to make this into a business for you? Because I think there's there's that scratching that itch type mentality and making this part of your life. Like it's almost what I'm doing here. It's like I worked with CrossFit athletes for a long time and it wasn't scratching that itch of connecting with people like you and also the clients I work with, those entrepreneurs. Like it's that I've got to have that part. Like what was the driver to make this into, this isn't just a pastime, this is now a business for me and this is a way of living? I think I then I then need to go back to as well when I was working in that kitchen job and my rationale at that time was okay maybe I can do this job in order to fund the passion on the side but that then of course led to maybe the occasional weekend maybe the odd evening and a couple of weeks of holiday a year and that just was not enough and I wanted to immerse myself more fully into that lifestyle of adventure and for me the only way I could see that I could do that was to quit the job and just go absolutely all in. Uh, and as I said before, that there's no blueprint for this. So then it was a case of, okay, how am I actually going to turn this into a business or into, into a way I can make money and, and uh, pay for all the things you need to pay for in life. And so what I then did was, uh, numerous things. So I got into a bit of public speaking. So I worked with corporate groups, go out and speak on topics of resilience and confidence, uh, set up, set up my own business. I did a lot of freelance work at first, working for various expedition companies, guiding expeditions before setting up my own company. Um, I do quite a bit of working with outdoor brands on product testing, um, going down to sales events and things like that. Um, that's something I really enjoy. Um, and, and now as I'm focused in on, on a big, um, personal project, the ultimate seven project, then it's, it's working with more brands on a, on a sort of sponsorship basis and, and trying to get their support as I, as I really try and push the boundaries. So, uh, there's been all kinds of other things in between, you know, to get me through COVID, I had this, uh, furniture business for a couple of years and that, that actually did, did. Well, I was, I hired quite a few people and, and, um, had a workshop and things like that, that got me through those, those tough couple of years. So it was adapting and, um, and, and, and that's, that's again, where these skills from expeditions can come into this entrepreneurial sort of lifestyle where you've got to, you've got to figure out the, the situation you're in. What's the best way I can, uh, get myself through this and how can I increase my, my, um, my level of success? How do you square the idea of humility, which is obviously such an important part of what you do and also what you respect in other people, and it's also just like a way of going, being a good person, mm. with the self-promotional aspect? Like It's something that I've struggled with. Like, okay, I've got to create yeah. reels, and I've got to um, talk about what I do and the benefits of what I do, and it comes across sometimes like, yeah, it's, it's a challenge to face. Like, How do you square that challenge? Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's something I've never particularly enjoyed. In fact, when I started doing these expeditions, I wasn't posting anything anywhere. I was just doing them. And, and that sort of theme followed through, you know, many years of my expeditions, or maybe I'd, I'd stick one photo on and, and I think that would be enough. But um, I do realize that from a purely practical point of view, in order to promote yourself, in order to grow a business, it is necessary to to put yourself out there, and so I, I, I try I try to just whatever I am putting out there. I, I try to just. 
be myself and and say things which I believe in and not try to follow trends and follow viral videos and things like that, but just be true to myself. And then I feel like I'm giving a, an accurate representation of, of who I am and what I do. And I think that helps me, helps me balance um, putting yourself out there into the world. I, I wouldn't want to drift too far down the line of, of following trends and uh, just We're doing things. We're going to see you on TikTok soon, are we? No, if you do, then please please give me a strong nudge <laughs> in, in the opposite direction. Um, but yeah, it, it's being true to yourself and 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 playing you know playing the practical game really. Yeah, of course, man. Talk to me about the Ultimate Seven. Where did that idea come from? Um, like I'm fascinated by it and like, and also give people a, a background into what that is. Yeah, thank you. I mean, the Ultimate Seven is a project which first crossed my mind almost 10 years ago. So it's been on my mind for a long time. And for a long time, I felt it, it wasn't possible. Um, but it's only in the last couple of years where through, again, lots of research, going through these processes I've talked about, I've come to the thought that it is possible and I want to try it. And the project is um, to travel from the lowest point in each continent to the highest. Um, so simple as that, but it's all seven continents. And when I say lowest point, I mean lowest point below sea level. So uh, in Asia, for example, lowest point is Dead Sea between Jordan, uh, Jordan and Israel. The highest point, of course, is Everest. And the challenge is to do all of these journeys completely human-powered, so on foot, by bike, sometimes on ski, sometimes even on boat. Um, and nobody's ever done this before, like, you know, as, as a whole. Has anyone collective. tried? So a couple of the legs have been done. So the Africa leg has been done, as far as I know, three times. Mm-hmm. Um, the Asia leg has been done by one group, as far as I'm aware. The North America leg has been done by one person before. But that must be a huge journey. Where's the lowest point in North America? North America is uh, lowest point is Death Valley, so Death Valley oh, in Southern geez. California, way <laughs> up, up to, to uh, Denali. Yeah. yeah, and of course, most people will be flying into the base camp for Denali. Um, yeah. And of course, if I'm doing it fully human powered, that will mean a lot of bushwhacking and and scrambling up through glaciers and things to even make it to base camp. Um, yeah, and just but, getting through the whole of Canada as well to get there. Of course, that's a big chunk of Canada you're going through, way up <laughs> into the Yukon and and uh, across into Alaska. So that's, yeah, that, that's the sense of the scope of it. It is a multi-year project. I'm just now back from the Africa leg, which was the first, first leg. I'm, you know, really happy to have, to have succeeded, um, on that leg. It, it was not without its challenges. Um, but I, I just went into that just feeling like this could prove to be one of the easiest legs. I cannot afford to fail. I really cannot afford to fail on this uh, at the first hurdle. Um, but that said, it, it, it was far from easy. You know, it was, there were definitely a lot of challenging moments there. Um, so yeah, I'm, still, like, I'm still reflecting and unwinding on that one. Because what comes to mind there is that is by no way easy to mm. do that. Um, like, But it is surely one of the easiest out there, if not the easiest of the of the seven. Yeah, it could, it could well prove to be the easiest. Or at least the, the least terribly difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got its own specific risks, which I think is what made it, yeah, like elements what? of it. So particularly the roads. So just being on those African roads, I mean, that is the big risk. Lots of trucks, 
I mean, donkeys, dogs, wild animals. Uh, in Ethiopia, I had a lot of hostility. So I had people throwing rocks at me, uh, people chasing me with sticks, chasing me on motorbikes. Uh, even had somebody throwing a knife at me. Um, so it just spending a lot of time on the roads was, was definitely the biggest risk in Africa. Um, and then you have got, I mean, day one was possibly the hardest day of the entire trip. And that was starting out in Djibouti, a little place called Lac Asal, which is 160 meters below sea level. And it's around 45 degrees there, even at, you know, as the sun's coming up in the morning, it very quickly get, gets up to 45 degrees, which is just horrendously hot. To, and the first day was, uh, you know, I did about 1,600 meters of climbing, often into dust uh, dust clouds and, and exhaust fumes in that heat. Um, yeah, it was, was pretty brutal to say the least. And um, definitely heat exhaustion was a, was a real concern. So had to had to be very careful to try and moderate my body temperature. Nice. And what's the, I like the ideal focus in terms of the journey going through this is like, what, what's next on the list? How are you going to approach this? So I'm going to do it one continent at a time. It's not going to be all linked together and there's going to be small gaps in between each continent. Um, so the second stage I will be sort of formally launching in in the coming weeks or so uh that's going to be this winter so you know i'll be i'll be putting that out there soon and um what i what i aim to do generally speaking is build up from the slightly easier slightly cheaper expeditions to the longer and more expensive expeditions down the road in the aim of trying to build support, trying to build um, media attention, all of these things that I, essentially I will need in order to pull this project off. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to be the cheapest expedition project, far from it. Um, so I will need, yeah, I will need uh, brand support and all that, that sort of thing down the line in order to pull it off. We get a fair few people listening to this who could be in the position to sponsor um obviously not making any promises on their behalf where would they go to uh, like to find out more information about what that would look like so i mean i, I would of course love to have conversations with uh, with anybody who who might be interested in this and you know glad to have support from canada goose and lecole so a couple of really big brands um and if you would like to have a conversation you know you can reach out to me directly either on yeah, I'm very active on Instagram at Ollie underscore France or on LinkedIn, Ollie France on there. And my website is wildedge.co and you can send me a message through my website as well. So um, yeah, that would be amazing. Thank you. Cool. Sweet. Well, if we could solve that for you, that would be amazing. And um, is is that the same pe place people can find out about you if they want to go on expeditions with you and go trip? Absolutely. Yeah. So head over to Wild Edge and I am just in the process of putting together a list of tasty expeditions for the next 18 months or so, which will be launched very soon. So um, yeah, lots of exciting expeditions to come on there as well. Sweet. Yeah. I really appreciate the variety you've got in there, like going to Congo. Like that seemed yeah. incredible. Um, I was watching that video just thinking like, shit, that's pretty, pretty incredible experience to get with. Uh, thank you. With it those beasts. <laughs> it was pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, Congo is an amazing place. Not for the faint hearted, but yeah, um, yeah, probably the sketchiest place I've ever visited, actually. Um, In terms of hostility? Yeah, yeah. More so than Iraq and Syria. Uh, yeah, it was uh, just bandit country. Yeah.
Um, yeah. It feels like anything could happen at any moment. So an interesting place. Yeah, that sounds it. Because the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Iraq, for example, well, it's for me especially is the conflict. I'm just like, yeah. okay, well, that's been that's the first thing that comes to mind. But you don't think of initially those kind of adventures, and you don't think of safety initially. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's that's an interesting place to go. Anyway, dude, I'm going to let you get on with the day. Um, thank yeah. you so much for your time. Um, and yeah, any last words for anyone, or should we? to wrap up there no it's been it's been a real pleasure and uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, i'll leave you with a quote which i've been thinking about uh, recently which is the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven and that is a quote from john milton's paradise lost i think about that a lot on my expeditions and that for me speaks of the fact that any situation is not inherently good or bad it is our perception of that situation that makes it so and that is something we can control so uh leave people with that to ponder about nice incredible place went thank you so much for your time thanks tom it's been a pleasure really appreciate it join us on a powerful journey with once we were warriors a documentary that transcends boundaries and speaks to the souls of our veterans we need your support to turn this vision into reality once we were warriors reveals the path to recovery for injured royal marines commandos in the french alps Produced by former servicemen, it offers the most authentic storytelling. This documentary dives deep into the lives of those who have served, challenging stereotypes and advocating for veterans' care as we approach a decade since the end of combat operations in Afghanistan. But to make this vision a reality, we need your support and your funding. Support us on a crowdfunding campaign at www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com to help us make this documentary a reality and give a voice to those who have sacrificed so much. Join us in making a difference. Together, we can rewrite the narrative for our veterans. Once more, that link is www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com.